Alrighty, we're going to spend some time now looking at the Bible together. And yeah, the central part of our gathered time each and every week is in looking at the Word of God and hearing it explained to us. We might actually encounter God afresh through this thousands of year old text. And as we've been in for the last um, eight weeks, we're in the book of Deuteronomy. Today we'll be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 26. So getting towards the end of the book. Deuteronomy 26 from verses 1 to 11. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket. And you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. Say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. And the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering man was my father, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he began a great, uh, mighty, and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that your Lord God has given you and to your house, you, the Levite, and the sojourner who is among you. Well, good morning. My name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. Really good to have you with us this morning. Uh, and if it's your first time with us at City Light, really great to have you along this week in the lead up to Christmas. And uh, if it is, if you've been here week after week, it's so good to have you back again as we move further through the book of Deuteronomy and as we dive into what this ancient text has to say to us. And again, like we've kind of seen week after week, what we'll see in God's Word is that though it's an ancient text written to an ancient people, it has modern applications. And if this is your first week in a church community, and you are, maybe have questions about faith or wouldn't describe yourself as particularly spiritual or religious, and you've come on the week when we're hitting the topic of money, like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I thought church would be like, I think you'll be surprised by what God has to say to his people then and his people now about what it means to steward our finances to the glory of God and what kind of world it would be if everyone handled what they had the way that God calls his people to handle what he gives them, that is their wealth. I don't know if you've ever handled anything potentially deadly, but when I was in high school, I joined a cadet unit. I know I was pretty, I was pretty cool. And, um, but one of the things that we got to do was to head to a military base. And we were told there about all the different kind of activities that you get to do, but the one that everyone was looking forward to was we were told we were going to shoot a machine gun. And, and so you can imagine for 16-year-old boys how G'd up everyone got about this. And everyone kind of imagined themselves with kind of like, you know, one of those like, if you've seen Predator, like that style, like side handle ammunition, just sort of like, you know, a Gatling gun or something like that. 
But as you can imagine, people who work for the military are a little bit more organized and smart than that. And as, as the event got closer and closer, our expectations and reality started to sort of diverge a little bit. So on the way there, we were told that, yes, it was kind of an automatic weapon, but it was like a, a military issue style, which we actually would not be shooting on automatic sort of setting, that you'd just be shooting in semi-automatic. We're like, that's fine, you know, that's still pretty powerful and that sort of thing. Then we're told that the, the rifle itself was actually a lot smaller than everyone was thinking. Then we're also told it was made half of plastic. That's true, by the way, that's actually part of it. And then by the time we got there, the part that probably was the most underwhelming was just how much time was spent doing all the safety protocols and the drills and all the stuff you had to do because everyone's just there saying, just give me the guns, give me the guns, I just want to shoot them. And just how long it took before you actually got to do that. But of course, if we had our heads on straight, we would have realized from the start that of course it was going to be like that. You're not going to hand 16-year-old boys a weapon without drilling them thoroughly on how to handle this thing safety and on having very tight and sure protocols about how you handle this stuff. It's not a toy. It's not for mucking around. And it's the same with anything. Anything that you are taught to handle that, has, that is potentially deadly has more and more protocols attached to it. There are protocols for handling needles, for live ammunition, for explosives, for radioactive materials. And the more dangerous the thing is, the more drawn out and serious and rigorous are the protocols. In this chapter of Deuteronomy, Israel are about to receive instructions on how to handle the most dangerous thing they'll have in their possession. The thing that is the cause of wars and rumors of wars the thing that has torn families apart, the single biggest cause of injustice and oppression in the world, the single biggest factor in pride and envy, and the thing that's most likely to tear Israel aside from their God. They're going to be taught how to handle wealth. And they're going to be taught the rituals and traditions that are going to go with how they will handle this so that they'll be a people that handle everything that they are given with care and for the glory of God. So that they'll use what they are given, this wealth, incredible wealth that they are given, in a way that demonstrates that God himself is gracious and a generous giver. And so I'm going to pray that as we open God's word, he'd be showing us exactly what it means to handle what he has given us for his glory and for the good of others. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a good and generous God. That the gospel teaches us that you are a self-sacrificing God. That you give of yourself for the good of others and that you call your people to demonstrate the same grace. And so we pray as we see what you instruct your people on how to handle what you have given them, the wealth that you have entrusted to them, that we would see your goodness in your design and your mercy to us in Christ. Amen. Well, we've seen over the last few weeks a whole bunch of ancient laws. And so if you're here for the first time and you maybe didn't grow up reading the Bible or anything like that, a, a lot of the, in fact, you know what, even if you did, a lot of the words and places and names in the passage that were read out before might seem completely foreign, and there's a good reason for that. They are. We're talking about an ancient Near Eastern people and, and ancient Near Eastern places. And we're getting laws in a few weeks ago around sacrifice and then around holiness and then last week around justice and welfare. And this week, we're looking at the laws around a funny word, a word you don't hear much, tithing. And it literally means tenthing or giving a tenth of in terms of wealth. 
And it all starts in Deuteronomy 14 when God gives them these laws around this practice called tithing. Look what we read in Deuteronomy 42, uh, 14. There is no Deuteronomy 42, just FYI. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, uh, which the Lord God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord God chooses and you shall spend the money on whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. So Israel are called to tithe, and the word literally means the tenth part or a tenth of. And here, every year, they're to take a tenth of their grain and their wine and their oil and their livestock. Basically, it's just a way of saying just everything you've got, tenth it all. And they're to take it, it says here, to the place the Lord God will choose, which is Jerusalem, the capital. And if they can't carry it with them, they're to turn it into currency and then take that currency with them to Jerusalem to buy the equivalent amount once they get there. And then once they all meet in Jerusalem and bring a tenth of what they have, what are they to do with it? They're to eat it. This, this tithe is for a massive party. To give you some kind of context, this is what they threw every year. It would be like saying to Australians, every year you go to Canberra. No! But, but... Imagine you go to Canberra and a tenth of everyone's wealth is piled in to throw the biggest party ever. And it happens every single year. Now, even still with that, maybe Canberra is not the best comparison. <laughs> and for anyone who's here who's not, you know, you didn't grow up in Australia, that sort of thing, to just give you some context, the reason our capital is Canberra is because Melbourne and Sydney were fighting over it. And the government did what parents do when their kids are fighting over toys. And they say, if you can't work it out, then no one gets the toys. And that's what happened. Melbourne and Sydney couldn't work it out, so they're like, fine, Canberra gets it, right? Does every, is everyone happy now? And so that's why we have that as our capital. But for the, for the Israelite people, going to Jerusalem was a sense of, wow, this is the center of our cultural national life. This is where it's at. And so every year they would have tithed toward this. This was a, this was a party tithe, basically. But it wasn't, if you're thinking, well, this sounds very self-indulgent, it wasn't just about that, it was also about communal sharing. Because I, I don't know if you saw there, but there was a footnote, a strange footnote, about Levites. It says in there, you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion with you, no inheritance with you. They were all to gather in all their wealth, and that meant that those who had more and gave their 10% would have more than they could eat, so it was to share. But also, for the Levites, that was the one tribe in Israel that didn't have a land. They were the, the tribe that was set apart to serve God's people and their spiritual health. And they would have lived scattered throughout the land, but they had no land of their own. They were not landowners. So they were Sydney-siders. They were renters. And so when this big party comes together, because they don't have a land to tenth or tithe, the rest of the nation is providing for them. And so it wasn't that like the, the, the Levites were the people at the party who, like, who really had a lot of stuff, but they show up with like 
carrots and hummus or something like that, and you're like, oh, come on, right? They were the ones who actually had nothing, and when they came to it, the rest of the nation was to provide for them to demonstrate that God is a generous provider. And he has enshrined this in their law. He says, year by year you will do this. Every year you're going to do this. This was a festival that was a part of their rhythms. And what was the reason for it? It's clear right in the middle of the text. It says, so that you might fear the Lord. The reason that you're to do this is to be different to the nations around you. And you're to do this to demonstrate that you fear the Lord. Now, how is it that throwing a massive party together would demonstrate a fear of God? Well, it's clear in the scriptures that fear means more than being afraid. It doesn't mean less than. Because God is an almighty God, and there is a right kind of sense of fear and awe about him. But it doesn't stop there. It's not a fear of punishment. It's a sense of reverence and awe at how good this God is. That he is the God who rules the nations. That he is the God who created the universe. And the reason they're to do this every year is to show the nations around them what their God is like. To say, our God is a generous provider. And he put us in the land, not that so that we might be selfish and just do what we can with what we have, but that we might celebrate together God's provision that he generously provides and for our good that he calls us to throw a party every year. And perhaps maybe also Israel needed this because after 400 years of being slaves in Egypt, maybe someone had to regulate some time off for them. And so through this, God is teaching them that he is generous, that he is a good provider and that they are called to share the abundance with one another to his glory. But the question you may have is if you grew up in churches or church culture, you might have heard the term tithing applied to God's people now. And so you might be thinking, how on earth does that idea of tithing there map onto our current experience of giving? We don't have any regulations here at church about an, like a, a, year-long, what is it, a, a yearly party where everyone puts a tenth of what they have into it. But to give some context, maybe the next part of Deuteronomy 14 gives us some idea of where it is the idea came from that God's people might use their money to provide for the needs for others. Look what it says in Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29. It says, At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Every tenth year, oh sorry, every year a tenth was set aside for this annual festival. But then we read every three years there's this triennial tithe. And this one is one where you're to bring a tenth of all that you have, the same again, it's the same kind of instructions. But this time, it's not for a party they all throw together. This one instead is to be given away to who? It says to the Levite, to the poor, the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the foreigner, those who, who don't have a land of their own, those who are the most vulnerable people groups within Israel, that every three years there was to be provision made for them. And the likelihood is that probably it wasn't the case that just every three years they made one big dump pile and they were like, go nuts guys because this is three years worth of stuff. So you know, steward it wisely. Probably it was the case that people would be on different kind of rotations so that every year or at different times the provision would be made regularly for these people groups who had need month after month and year after year. 
But this was to fulfill God's command in Deuteronomy 15.4 when he says, As a nation, there will be no poor among you. That it should not be the case that in God's people, in God's land, that there should be those who are suffering from lack of need while others are living in abundance. And so bringing in this triennial tithe, this tithe every three years, was to make provision for those who didn't have enough to provide for themselves. And to make it clear, this was to be given in a very particular way. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy 26, the reading that we read out just before. It says in 26, 1-2, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first fruit of all the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. Moses clearly states here that once you're in the land, you're to take some of what's called the first fruits. So this every three-year tithe was to be taken from your first fruits. And again, being a not very agricultural society, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us. But to take from your first fruits is when your, when your harvest comes in and first bears fruit, you're to take your whole year's tithe, so a tenth of what you will get over the whole year, from your first gathering. And the reason for this is so that it guarantees that the poor and needy don't miss out. Because if you give from the last fruits at the end of the season, who knows what you'll get or if you'll get. But God regulates for his people, he says, from the first fruits you will give. So at the very start, to make sure that these people don't miss out, you give from the first fruits, not from the last fruits. Because God knows that the inclination of the human heart is that given the chance, we will find a way for others to miss out. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the uh, 20th century preacher and minister, told this story. I don't know if it was true or not or whether it was just an anecdote. But he told the story of a farmer who had a cow that unexpectedly gave birth to twins. And so he thought, this is amazing. The Lord has provided. And he comes in and he says to his family, we're going to devote one of the calves to the Lord and one for us as a family. We'll raise them together and then we'll sell it and give it away and all that money will go to whatever God decides. And a few days later, he came into his kitchen to see his family, looking very forlorn, and he said, I've got terrible news for you, everyone. The Lord's cow has died. Now, if you kind of don't get the gist of the gag, the idea is that it's always the Lord's calf that dies, isn't it? When it really comes down to it, unless we set aside from the beginning what it is that is right and faithful giving... It'll always be the Lord's calf that dies. It'll always be the bit that we have to give away that goes. God said to his people, you're to make provision for the Levite, the foreigner, the, the widow, the orphan. You're to care for these people and give it out of the first fruits to make sure that it happens so that there'll be no poor among you. But more than that, he gives them this ritual, this protocol, this way of giving it that's to be rehearsed every single time they do it so that they'll remember not just to give, but why it is that they give. Look what it says in Deuteronomy 26, 3 to 11. It says, And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare to the Lord your God that I've come into the land that the Lord God swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. 
And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror and signs and wonder. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God, and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. It was a very strict ritual that was to be done. You were to gather up this tithe, this giving. You were to bring it to a priest, a Levite. And as you put it down, you had to go through this kind of this ritual where you, it was kind of like a call and response sort of thing. And each time they would have to say this thing, a wandering Aramean was my father. We wandered through the desert. We were oppressed by the Egyptians, so on and so forth, every single time. Now, in your mind, can you imagine all these people doing this? Imagine a whole line of people. You're at the back of the line with your basket of stuff, and then the next person comes up, and they're stuttering through the lines. You're like, come on, this is taking forever. And it's, it's hot because it's the ancient Near East and all of that, and everyone's doing the same thing every time, over and over and over. Wouldn't you think, hey, look, let's just speed all this up. Everyone just dump it in one big pile and we can go home and get on with our lives. Why, why would God, the God who is so supposedly gracious and good, make his people do this thing every single time? Why? Because he wants them to understand the reason why they're doing it. And the reason we do these habits and rituals is as a reminder to ourselves because we are prone to forget the reason we do things, don't we? We just get into the habit of it and we lose the meaning of it. The reason that Christians say grace before dinner is meant to be a ritual that people keep to remind ourselves that we didn't provide for ourselves, but God has provided for us. And so sometimes we can get in the rut of just saying the same thing over and over again. Or some, some people do like at preschools and stuff like the Superman prayer or something like that, sing it to a tune. But the reason that we do it over and over again is as a reminder that this is a gift of grace to be received. And here, every time his people are to give this tithe, this to make provision for the poor and needy and for the Levite, the reason that they're to do that is as a reminder that they're doing this out of the sheer grace of God. That as God has given to them, so they are called to give. As grace has been shown to them, so they are to show grace. So they're meant to say these lines, not as like a kind of a perfunctory sort of thing, but to remind themselves to story themselves in the gospel again. And to say, to remind themselves of how they got here into this land. They weren't a vast and populous nation. They weren't a powerful and mighty nation. They were nothing and no one. They're to say, our father, Abraham, wandered in Aram. He was nothing. And God turned him into a huge nation. And now we have this land and this provision and all this goodness that we, didn't, we were just born into. And because of that, we give away to whom God has called us to give away to. To those who weren't able to provide for themselves. And the whole point of this ritual is that it's meant to be a joy and not a duty. Because at the end of this it says, and then you are to rejoice in all the good that God has done to you. You're not to do this out of sheer obligation or like, ah, Yes, God gave us this land, but he did put that, that little clause at the bottom that said you have to do this tithing thing all the time 
fine, I guess it's par for the course, we've got to suck it up and do it or whatever it is. No, it was meant to be heartfelt, joy-filled worship. That they would come and celebrate, not just the time when they get to enjoy that annual tithe that they put together, but that they would rejoice in the fact that they get to provide for others because God has provided for them. That it would be their joy to generously give away just as God has generously given to them. And this was the pattern that God established for his people in the first covenant. Well, thank goodness that doesn't have anything to do with us now, right? We didn't have these rituals. We didn't have Levites in our towns. We didn't have these things to sort of cover through. We didn't have to go to Canberra every year. It's just once in year six that you have to go. (laughs) But here's the thing. If God's grace led to generosity in the first covenant, then how much more so in light of the gospel? Look what we read about God's community, his people, his church, in 2 Corinthians 8. Come with me there. This is Paul writing to a church. And for some context, what's happened here is Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, which is a place in Greece. And he's talking to them about an offering that they're going to give to people in Jerusalem who they don't know. Jerusalem has had a, has a drought and a famine, and so people are dying there and they're in desperate need. And the churches all around that area who were just a brand new church, this was in the decades just following Jesus' life and teaching and ministry and death and resurrection. And all of these churches are now going to give to the poor and needy in Jerusalem. And Paul's writing to them about this issue. And he says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, he should complete uh, among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. See, experiencing God's radical grace leads to radical generosity. And just look how radical the generosity was that's here. Paul is writing to these people in Corinth about the gift that they're about to give. It's going to be collected later on. But he says to them, hey, the church in Macedonia are just an example of how grace can transform people's lives. He said they were afflicted. That means most likely that they were being persecuted for following Jesus. They were being beaten, threatened. They were having their possessions taken away from them. But not only that, he says they were in not just poverty, but extreme poverty. And he says, and this overflowed in a wealth of generosity. That even in those circumstances, they were able to give to the need of others, of people that they had no obligation to. They were not related to by family and they had no previous connection to. The only share that they had was the share they had in Christ. That not knowing these brothers and sisters in another part of the world, which at that time might as well have been on the other ends of the earth, 
It leads to this overflowing generosity towards them. Why? Paul says, because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because you know that he became poor, that you might become rich. That is, that he came down to suffer on our behalf, that we might be set free and have life indestructible in him. And I was thinking about this just this week, about the difference in the grace of God revealed to Israel as opposed to us who, who follow Christ right now. Just think of it maybe in this way. It's kind of like if you, imagine you were a slave without any hope of ever being set free and a rich benevolent benefactor steps in, pays the fee to set you free, but then also out of their own pocket provides for you lavishly, gives you a house, furnishes it, gives you an occupation and land and employment and all of that and sets you up basically for life. That would be, that would be a staggering experience of grace. And that, in some ways, kind of maps onto how Israel experienced grace. But it's also the case that in that illustration, that wealthy benefactor, they, they're really giving out of their abundance, and it isn't in that sense necessarily all that costly to them, is it? But imagine, imagine this in this way. Imagine instead that you're in slavery and no chance of ever escaping, and then someone who is wealthy and had no obligation to you. In fact, let's, let's make the scenario a bit closer to the gospel. Let's say you were cast into slavery because you did something to this wealthy person or their family. And then they not only offered to pay the ransom for you, but they actually were willing to become a slave and even die on your behalf to set you free. You see the difference in those two scenarios? One, you'd be very thankful that someone gave out of their excess, but it wasn't necessarily that costly to themselves. But in that second scenario, just think of the gratitude you'd have that someone who had no obligation to, and maybe who even was obliged to do the opposite, would suffer for you on your behalf. And that's the gospel of Jesus. That he, Paul says, became poor that we might become rich. And he's talking in spiritual terms. That Christ came to pay our debt, the debt that we could not pay because the ransom was our lives. And instead, he shed his blood and his life for ours, a life for a life. Which means now that you go into death not in fear and terror, but knowing that it's the gateway to life eternal. That it's in, instead of the end, that it's the beginning. And instead of facing the judgment of God, you will come into his grace and his favor forever. And that's grace that leads to joy. That's why Paul writes in the very next chapter in Corinthians, he says, God loves a cheerful giver. Which cheerful is probably not the right word there, is it? Cheerful just seems so like someone who's like silly happy because they don't really understand what's going on, right? The, the idea here is that God loves a joyful giver. One whose heart has been transformed by the grace of God to be someone who gives. And so for this reason, New Testament grace giving often exceeds the Old Testament regulations, doesn't it? That here in Corinth, Paul was saying, these Macedonian Christians who were just new to the faith gave even beyond their means. It's like Paul and the other apostles were saying to them, no, just, just take it easy. Just think about what you're giving first. But instead, they were so overwhelmed by the gospel that they wanted to give in generosity. And so with that in mind, it has some implications for us, doesn't it? If, if God's people in the Old Testament were called to give out of their first fruits, 
how much more so those who have experienced the grace of God in the gospel? I was, I was reading a, uh, on a website recently. There's a humanist website set up for, um, to encourage people, particularly in wealthy Western countries, to give more. And it's a brilliant website, the way it's set up. You can, for any gift of giving that you have, it can tell you exactly the kind of impact that it's meant to have. They try to make sure they are connected only to sort of A1 grade charities who are being effective with what they have. But the motivation given on the website is this. It says, look, if you can give without any significant impact to yourself, then you probably should give. And I think that, that is enough to motivate giving in, in wealthy Western countries. Say, look, if you can give in a way that really doesn't impact your lifestyle particularly, then you probably should. Now, I feel like in many ways that's quite weak motivation for giving. But if there is no God and there is no gospel, I guess that's where you land. But here Paul says that, no, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know that he poured out his life for you on your behalf when you didn't deserve it. How much more now are you called to extend that grace to others? So it should be the case that as followers of Christ, that you'd give not from your last fruits, that is what's left over, and after I've made all my lifestyle decisions, if there's a little bit left over, we'll see if there's something there to give away, but to decide from the start what would it look like to be generous and before I make any other financial decisions, that's the portion I set aside that's going to go away, that's not for mine to keep, that's going to bless others. And with this, you do actually need a line. Because greed works best in vagary, doesn't it? And so you really should have some kind of a line. And so the reason that many people in the church choose a line of 10%, and in fact, even going back to this website, the, the, the arbitrary number that many choose is around 10%. But the reason that many choose that is because it's a great floor, but not necessarily a great ceiling. Listen to this quote from Randy Alcorn, who, who wrote a book called The Treasure Principle. He said, Studies over the past decades indicate that among American Christians, so this is their context, but among American Christians, they give on average between 2 to 3% of their income. In fact, more than one out of four American Protestants give away no money at all, not even a token $5 a year. But a 2013 study found that those who do tithe compose only 10 to 25% of the families in a church, but they often provide 50 to 80% of the funding. Isn't it troubling, he comments, that in this wealthy society, what's inaccurately called grace giving amounts to only a fraction of the first covenant standard? Tithing is God's historical method to get his people on the path of giving. In that sense, it can serve as a gateway to the joy of true grace giving. It's the unhealthy view, it's unhealthy to view tithing as a place to stop, but it certainly can be a good place to start. Tithing isn't the ceiling of giving, it's the floor. It's not the finish of the line of giving, it's the starting blocks. Tithes can launch us into the mindset, skills, and habits of grace giving. That's his reflection on thinking biblically around grace and what we have been given and what we are called to give away. And do you know the difference between grace-giving and guilt-giving? Grace-giving, when you have experienced the grace of God and think, it is my joy to be generous like God has been generous, has the mindset of, how can I, how can I live off as simply as I can in order that my, I might give away as much as I possibly can? Because that view is like, it is a blessing to give, 
and Jesus' words when he says it is more blessed to give than to receive are true. And so that mindset says, how can I live as simply as possible that I might give away as much as possible? But a guilt mindset is saying, how can I maximize my lifestyle whilst giving away enough to not feel guilty about it? How can I do something that's going to, how can I give away an amount that's going to appease my conscience enough that will justify the lifestyle that I spend on elsewhere? God says it should not be so among his people. We're called to experience grace in such a radical and transforming way that it would actually be our joy to do what is counterintuitive, which is to give rather than to receive. To be so transformed by the gospel that we believe Jesus' upside-down words when he says it's even more blessed to give than to receive. And so here, if this is something that you struggle with, it's worth stopping and thinking on. Not just as we reflect on Deuteronomy, but as you reflect on the gospel and as we come up to Christmas time on the self-giving God. And it's worth asking the question, if right now it doesn't feel like a joy to give, it's at least worth asking the question why. Don't you reckon? It's worth asking why. If all this in Scripture, if God says all these things, if Jesus lays out all these things, and right now it kind of feels like, ah, I, I could do it, but it sort of feels like a, a tight deal from God, then it's worth reflecting on why. And not doing it alone, but maybe even having one or two trusted friends that you could actually be real with and be like, I hear this truth in Scripture that it really should be a joy, and to be honest, I'm just not feeling it right now. Would you pray with me about this matter? Because as we head into next year, which is our 10th year as a church, wouldn't it be incredible to see the grace of God work to release that kind of generosity in this community? And even as kind of small as we are as a community, the impact that that could have on the world around us would be incredible. Because grace should lead us to joyfully enter into the suffering of others and the needs of others. It wouldn't be incredible to be a church who was so gripped by the gospel that it was our joy to supply the needs of others. That when we hear things like the fact that there are 40 million people living in slavery, that it would move us to want to do something about it and take effective action and to use what we have, even if it's a small amount relative to the people around us, to alleviate the affliction of others to the glory of God. To think, what if it was my son or daughter who was being enslaved or trapped in slavery? What would I want someone to do? To know that there are people living and dying sorry, from preventable diseases that we have the means to provide cures for. That there are people suffering operable blindness that can be relieved of that. That there are people living without the hope of the gospel who have never heard of Christ, who are wondering whether or not they're even worth anything or whether there is any meaning to life and the gospel is there and has the answers. And there are people who are willing to go and people who have gone even to the far corners of the earth that you could be a part of supplying the need for. Imagine what it would be like. See, there are needs everywhere. And the, the truth is, as followers of Christ, there really should be three areas that all of us should be giving into. It's clear from the New Testament that we are called to give away to alleviate suffering and poverty and to alleviate injustice in the world. There's text after text in the New Testament. It's clear that if you're a part of a local church, that you should be giving towards that ministry. And if you've been burnt, and if you've been in a church in the past where you were someone who gave sacrificially, 
and it turned out that the staff there were either mismanaging the funds or they were turning up every week with like matching Balenciaga tracksuits or something like that. I realized actually as making a joke about it that that's not particularly funny. That actually that is a misrepresentation of the gospel and leadership in Christ. That those who follow Christ are meant to serve rather than to be served. And so if that's been the case, I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry that that happened. And to pray through the fact that, that it may take time to restore your, tr- your trust in the church before you're at the point of actually giving in that sense. But it is something that we're called to do in the New Testament. We're called to give to alleviate poverty and suffering and to advance the, co- the gospel in the local church context. But we're also called to give to advance the gospel in the global cause, to missions and to world missions. And so as we come up to Christmas... My prayer is that as a church that we'd be thinking how the gospel might transform us in these areas. Because often it's the case that finances is the very last area of our life to get sanctified and touched by the gospel. And so as we do this, and as you think about the needs that are everywhere, even the brief statistics that are read out before, it might feel like there's just so much need everywhere. In, global, in the global missions, in the local church, in uh, alleviating poverty and suffering. Where is it that we start? Well, the truth is that we can't do everything, but you can do something. And so my prayer is that over this week, that you might set aside some time to think about what portion of what God has given you, you're going to set aside that would be for giving away. And what we touched on last week was the organizations that we support, the Asylum Seeker Center in Newtown, Diamond Women, supporting women in a very a, a difficult and vulnerable position, for Open Doors, supporting the persecuted church, and for our link missionaries, the Edwards. Have I missed someone there? I have. Who have I missed? I've missed it again, sorry. News. Hands and feet. What well, hands say it louder, Anna? Morgan and Olivia, yes. There, yeah, yeah. I link missionaries there as well. The Ren News, that's what you were saying. I thought you were saying news. I was like, we don't support news. What's that? Anyway. All right. Okay, great. Thank you. But to consider how you might give to those needs. But there is one other need coming up into next year that's worth me addressing as well. Now this year, for the first year in a couple of years, we've actually come through under budget. So we are $30,000 under budget for the first time in a bunch of years. Now our budget this year, and I've held off on World Cup illustrations, but I, I told you last week if you were here that you were going to get them. And I've been, I feel like I've been very restrained even up until now. But our budget for this year is what you might call in soccer terms just a tap-in. That is like an easy goal where there's no one in front of you but just the net. And instead, we've sort of skied it straight over the bar. And so because of that, that means that heading into next year, it is something that we actually need to address. Because we'd hate to go into our next year and at our 10th anniversary, thinking about everything going forward and then having to go backwards and address budget issues going back. And so with that in mind, we want to put before the church, and we'll send you out an email this week giving all the details of it, that it may be a need that you would consider giving towards as you think about all of the things that God calls you to give towards. And the reason for it is not that we want to be about matching budgets, but we want to be about taking the gospel forward, about being a growing, healthy, multi-generational church, reaching people and having a Sydney-wide impact. And as we do that, that means addressing things like this as we go forward. And so my prayer is that just as God has at each and every stage, that he would provide the grace needed to address our needs, but not just here in the church, but that we might be an outward-focused church. That the impact that this church has would be outsized to our actual physical size because of the grace of the gospel. 
And even as Jacob says, over the years, this church has been so generous in giving away money to people we don't even know and will never even meet that it might bless and benefit them because Christ has been gracious to us. But my prayer is that going into next year, that we more and more would be so gripped by the gospel that it wouldn't be a duty or an obligation to give, but a radical joy and a transforming, life-transforming joy. Let's pray that that would be the case. Father God, we praise you that you are the God of all grace. That from Old Testament to New, you have poured out your grace on your people and that it's to lead to radically transformed hearts and lives and that it should be reflected in the way that we handle and steward our wealth. That our concern would be for the poor, the afflicted, and those who are victims of oppression and injustice. That our heart would be to advance the cause of the gospel in the local church and in your global mission that our lives might reflect the truth of the gospel, that though we were poor, we've been made rich through Christ who was made poor for our sakes, whose blood was poured out, whose life was spent for ours, that we might have life eternal in him. And as we approach this Christmas, may it just strike us anew just how much grace you have poured upon us, that we might be transformed people and that we might have a joy like yours that is expressed in full generosity and self-giving. And Father, we pray all of these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.